Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And this is a beautiful passage that, as like last week, kind of announces the return from exile because the punishment has been sufficient. They have received from the Lord's hand double for all of her, of their sins. And because they have received this, then there is a word of comfort to make ready the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we have reason to believe this word because the word of God never fails And the word is ultimately good news to Jerusalem. Good news, the word of the gospel. The word of good news. That Yahweh will come in the flesh, mighty in power as a gentle shepherd, and indeed as the good shepherd who would give his life for the sheep. So let's read together Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, which says this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, thou that bringest good news, or, as you might have, you who bring good tidings to Zion. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Good morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 3. We've been studying the book of Matthew And we've come to this point where Jesus is born. God has saved his son, preserving him by having him go here and there, showing a pattern of new exodus in Jesus' very life. And now we'd expect him to be the 
primary actor. But as Matthew presents a three-part introduction to Jesus' ministry, a preparation, the first part of that isn't about Jesus or isn't featuring Jesus at all, but rather is about John the Baptist preparing for Jesus. And so we read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, we do thank you for the time now to look at the words of Matthew 3, 1 through 12 to understand the preparatory work of John the Baptist and see that the way was paved. The the Messiah is coming and did come. Help us to respond appropriately. As is said throughout this passage, let us repent. Let us humble ourselves. Let us come to faith in Jesus and not trusting in any of our works. And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If on your property, say in your backyard, you had an apple tree and it wasn't producing apples, or an orange tree that wasn't producing orange, or any fruit tree that wasn't producing fruit, you'd probably be a bit concerned. And you'd want to try to see what you can do about actually having it produce fruit. And maybe you just like the way it looks. But if you do decide to make it produce fruit, you're not going to buy some apples at a grocery store, get your glue gun and a staple gun, and get to work. You're going to start looking at the roots. Start trying to think, is there something we could do to make the tree itself be healthier? Such that from the roots up, it produces fruit. This illustration is used over and over again in counseling ministries. Particularly comes from a Jeremiah 17 type idea. It's the reality, though, of getting ministry and getting our lives changed from the heart, not just in external actions. And I think as John is here, and particularly as John starts using the tree imagery at the end of our passage, he's thinking about repentance as coming from the root. Not just having fruit that's stapled on, just some good deeds that we wear as a garment over us, but something that actually is transformed inside and out. Matthew 3, 1 through 12 shows us that an Elijah-like John prepares the way for the Lord with repentance. Deep-rooted repentance. And Matthew shows this in two scenes. And the first scene is verses 1 through 6 that John preaches repentance. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Really begin by knowing that in those days came John the Baptist. In those days is a very literary tie. It's connecting to what we've already seen in the fact that the king has been born and preserved. It's the same days of the king that John the Baptist is appearing. And though we recognize John as being one who baptizes, and indeed it's even called John the Baptist, his first action is not baptism at all. Matthew first lets us know that he preaches in the wilderness of Judea, that he proclaims and heralds, speaks up. And he speaks, verse 2, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe it's not surprising that the kingdom of heaven is near. After all, the king of that kingdom has been born and saved. He is on the move. He's coming. And if he is born, if he is already being called the Nazarene, already being called the branch, the branch that will grow into a mighty tree, a branch that will grow to reign over all nations, then the kingdom should be near. But because this kingdom is near, then John makes the claim, he makes the call, he makes the command, repent. To turn. Do a complete 180 from going one direction to going a different direction. It implies a few things. It implies, first of all, that there is something we need to turn from. There's something that we are doing, that we have done, or even that we are, that we need to turn from. It also implies that there'd be consequences, maybe benefits to turning, or consequences for not turning. The consequences bit is explained further by Matthew later. I think he's already given us an implication of what we need to turn from. Because in introducing the king, in introducing Jesus, he introduces him in Matthew 1, 21, as the one who had saved his people from their sin. We read there as the angel speaks to Joseph, and she, being Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Sin is anything we do, say, or think that goes against God and his will. And in Romans 1, not that long ago, we looked at how that can even mean just not giving proper gratitude and thanksgiving to him. So there's a need to turn from that sin and turn to the one who would save us from that sin. And when we think about Jesus saving him from our sins, it is impossible not to jump to the end of Matthew, not to jump to the end of any gospel account when Jesus dies, when he bears the sin, takes the penalty, and as the serpent was lifted up as an object of faith, so anyone who would look at him would live, so Jesus is lifted up on the cross so that all of us who look at him in faith, who respond in belief and turn from our sins to him, will live and will be in the kingdom of heaven. Repent. Turn from the sin. Turn from sin to Christ. And that's then what John is proclaiming, what we still proclaim today. The kingdom of heaven is near, so repent. And then there's the statement in verses 3 and 4 that begins with the most important word of for. The reason that John is preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is then explained starting in verse 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his garment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. We've already read in scripture reading Isaiah 40, 30, 43, which is what Matthew 3, 3 introduces. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is the prophetic messenger crying comfort before the coming of the Lord, before the coming of Yahweh. And he does it by preaching repentance, for the kingdom is near. He does it by paving the road with the repentance of the people that they are ready to receive him, to have faith in him. And then we are told something that seems a little random, but of course isn't. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. And his meat was locusts and wild honey. To diet that is befitting of one crying in the wilderness. In some ways, it's a uh, attire that fits those humble origins. But it also calls to mind something else. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. In 2 Kings chapter 1, a king of Israel is sick. And he tries to get help and get inquire of a false god. But someone comes in his way, 
intercepts the messenger, sends him back and says, is there no God in Israel that you would inquire of this false God? So the messengers come to the king and they talk about him and he's like, well, who was it? Who was it that told you these things? And this is their response in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. And they answered him, he was an hairy man, or possibly to translate, he was, had a garment of hair, and girt with leather around his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. For the king of Israel, knowing that it's a garment of hair and that he has a leather girdle, is enough to recognize who it is. And so Matthew calls back to the attire of Elijah in describing the attire of John the Baptist, makes us see the parallels in the events. Because there is an Elijah who's also supposed to come to prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi describes this messenger. Malachi chapter 3 describes the messenger in one sense as the people begin questioning where is the God of justice? Why does injustice prosper? And Yahweh responds, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This messenger is then picked up again in Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. An Elijah-like prophet is the one described in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3, preparing the way of the Lord. And John wears the same type of clothing as Elijah. And Matthew is hoping we notice this and starts cluing in, are there other similarities that this is the Elijah-like prophet that was to come? And there are. He's turning the hearts of the children along with the fathers. There is one further thing to note. The fact that John the Baptist fits the role of Isaiah 40 in Malachi 3 is significant then to understanding who Jesus is. We've said it before in our study of Matthew, but we'll say it again. The prophet of Isaiah 40, the messenger who comes, is to prepare the way before Yahweh. Yahweh. 
before God comes. And so too in Malachi 3.1, the Lord proclaims that the messenger will be sent to prepare the way before him. So if in fulfillment of these things, John is coming to prepare the way before Jesus, then it follows that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. God adding to himself a human nature is the person of the divine son coming, living, and dying. This is no mere man whose ministry we are anticipating. It's one truly God and truly man. The ministry of John the Baptist seems to have pretty optimistic results. Then, Matthew 3, 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. The response to John's call of repentance is that Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan. From that wide geography, many are coming to John. Unlike when Herod learns about Jesus being born and he and all Jerusalem with him are troubled, now the response is optimistic. It's right. And it's one of being baptized of John in the Jordan while they are, while they're in the attitude of confessing their sins. Much optimism. But scene two does provide a caveat. Though many are ready, not everyone is. The scribes, that we said, Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious elite, spend their time studying the scriptures, also come. But in scene two, John rebukes them. Verses seven to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism. They at least externally show signs of repentance. They're coming to be baptized of him, to submit to their need to be cleansed. 
but John is not convinced. Though this is the first time we would have seen mention of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew's Gospel, they are first introduced as antagonistic. Indeed, the first interpretation of their attitude is the words, O generation of vipers. O snakely generation, or even O offspring of the serpent. Perhaps they would expect that religious elite would be offspring of the woman. But John doesn't seem to think so. John says they are generation of vipers. And so then he asks, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And in many ways, it'd be a good thing to be warned to flee from the wrath to come. The rest of what John says is a warning to flee from the wrath to come. And so a lot of the rest of this sermon will be fleeing from the wrath to come. But the tenor seems to be sarcastic. You clearly couldn't have come up with this idea yourself. So who suggested to you that you could come here in order to flee from the coming wrath? And because of his lack of faith in their actual repentance, he then tells them, Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. Produce fruits that demonstrate your repentance, that are fitting with repentance. Show by your deeds that the words you're hoping to proclaim are true. Are you truly broken? Are you truly ready to change from the bottom up? Are you truly ready to abandon that sin to live for Christ? To live for God? To not just be saying words, but to mean it. To change the lifestyle 180 from going to sin to going to Christ and faith in him. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Transform. Let your life be transformed follow Christ. Next few verses seem to answer a assumption, an objection the Pharisees might be bringing. And verse 9 says, think not to your say within yourselves. We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Perhaps the Pharisees are thinking we have no need to turn we have Abraham as our father. 
We are not of the seed of the serpent, as you say. We are of the seed of Abraham. John's response. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Sobering to the Pharisees, and I think should be more sobering to us. God doesn't need physical offspring of Abraham in order to have sons of Abraham. He doesn't need Israel. How much more then does he not need us? God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. I think I'm evidence of that. I think most of us in this room are evidence of that. Gentiles raised up as the offspring of Abraham, not because we share in his blood, but because we share in his faith. But for those of the blood of Abraham, or for those not of the blood of Abraham, verse 10, and the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Perhaps the apple tree in your backyard. You find not just that it's not producing apples, but as you investigate the roots, you realize it's very diseased. It could fall. And of course, you don't want it falling on your house or on your car or on your garage. You, instead, want to make sure you can cut it down and control where it falls. The axe is laid onto the root of the tree. Just like the kingdom being near, the judgment is near. It's ready. It's imminent. It could come at any time. And with that judgment, therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Any tree that does not bear good fruit, any person who does not demonstrate their repentance with righteous living for the sake of Christ will be hewn down, cast into the fire, will be judged. So let us not make any presumption based off of our birth, our parentage, based off of our presence in church, our knowledge of the scriptures. Let us truly know Christ, believe in him, trusting his death as our only basis for righteousness and thus repenting from our own sin to him. John continues, thinking about his baptism and the baptism of Jesus who is to come. I, indeed, baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. 
he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We've come to begin to see it. Now it is here explicitly said, John's baptism is a baptism unto repentance. It has the goal of showing the repentance that is there at the root. And he thinks about the Jesus whose way he is preparing. He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. John says he's not worthy to be the lowliest of servant to Jesus, to pick up his shoes and carry them. And if John, who is later called the greatest born among women, is not worthy to carry Jesus' shoes, how would we be worthy to carry his grace? either to carry his grace as having received it such that we can have forgiveness of sins or to carry his grace so that others may see, behold, and accept. If John is not worthy to carry his shoes, how can we be worthy to carry his name? Yet we do by grace alone, through faith alone, in turning to him alone. And there is the beginning of benefit to turning from our sin. Being worthy to carry his name, being worthy to suffer on account of that name, and to be his servants. But not only so, Benefit comes, the end of verse 11. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Let's turn to the book of Acts. I take the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the fi and with fire as one baptism. That the Holy Ghost is coming as fire, as a purging fire. The only hesitation that I have is the fact that fire is used in verse 10 and verse 12 for judgment. But that's also not unique to other passages of Scripture that are clear, where fire can be used as both purifying and judging within the same passage. Malachi actually uses it. He will come as a refiner's fire, but he also be swift to judge. In Malachi 4, 1, all the wicked shall burn as the oven. Max 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what will happen after he is ascended. And in verse 5, he says, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And it seems that baptism with the Holy Ghost then happens in chapter 2. 
what we know as Pentecost because it happened at the Jewish day and feast of Pentecost. Acts 2, 3, and 4. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat down upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in chapter 1, Jesus points out that the baptism of the Spirit is still going to come. And in chapter 2, the Spirit comes upon the disciples as cloven tongues of fire. I think chapter 11, verse 16, is even more clear in the connection between the coming of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. In chapter 11, Peter is recounting how he preached the good news to Cornelius and other Gentiles, other non-Jews. And as he does so, he says in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Jesus will indeed and has indeed baptized us with the Holy Ghost and with fire because the Spirit dwells within the believer. We have Jesus' continual presence with us because his Spirit dwells within us. And so we have benefits of turning to him have the wonderful God, mighty in power and gentle as a shepherd, dwelling with us, in us, guiding us into all truth, guiding us to live for Christ all the more. But in contrast, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 3, those who have not repented, those who are the trees whose roots are still barren and thus not producing fruit. John says of Jesus, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, There's an imminence and a readiness. Just as the axe was laid to the root of the tree, now the fan, or the winnowing fork, is in his hand already. He is ready to purge his floor and separate the wheat from the chaff, to gather the wheat into his barn then, and to cast the chaff into unquenchable into fire that doesn't end. That is then the consequence for not turning to the Lord. To any who does not turn to the Lord. We should take some time to think about the smallest white lie we've ever said. The smallest in our eyes sin that we have ever committed. 
and then to behold this unquenchable fire, and to behold Christ on the cross, and realize that those two places of God's wrath being poured out on sin are worthy of even that small white lie. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's coming, and it's coming in judgment. It'll be glorious for those who turn to Christ. It's glorious to have the Spirit inside of us. But it will be very dreadful for those who don't. So do a 180 from your sin to belief in Christ and his cross and to live for the sake of his name. Father, we do thank you that though we are not worthy to bear your name, though we are not worthy to have any benefit from Christ's work, your grace still stands. And we stand, members of this church, or those who could be members of this church, in your love. I pray that if there is anyone who does not know your love and who is on the path right now to unquenchable fire, that they would come to repent of even the smallest white lie, the lifestyle of sin that we live, to turn towards you and begin living the lifestyle of righteousness, living in faith in Jesus Christ and standing alone in that. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?